Before we share our first episode of the year, I would like to ask for your support. If you like our podcast and you would like to help us grow, please take time to rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing from our audience about what you've learned from our show and how you're using it to advance DEI. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. Our podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. January is the time of year when we set personal and professional goals for the year ahead. We often call them our New Year's resolutions. That word resolution comes from the word resolve, which is defined as a fierce determination to do something. And in 2023, I'm fiercely determined for this show to keep helping all of our listeners learn how to create more inclusive workplaces. You may have noticed that I always end our show by asking guests what we need to do to make our organizations more diverse, inclusive, and equitable. Their answers have energized me and excited me to take action, and I hope they'll help you start 2023 off right. We've gotten some amazing advice, and for this episode, we've collected it to help you kickstart your inclusion journey. Ruchika Tolshin was one of my first guests on Inclusion Begins With Me. She's an author, award-winning journalist, and inclusion strategist. She called on us to challenge systems and question the way things have always been. So many Americans, and, and I would actually, I'd go so far as to argue again, no matter where you are in the world, those silos are very, very deep. This idea of I must stick with my community. I must be, you know, I'm I'm hardwired to prefer people who look like me, who have the same identities as me. It's a system that we have to constantly challenge and fight. But the reality is based on, you know, laws that were made, you know, a long time ago, whether it's to do with what I call literally the segregation of neighborhoods, of schools. We have to choose difference courageously and actively in a world and in a society that makes it hard. I wanted to start here because the historical context of DEI is pivotal to the work we're doing. When we resolve to be more inclusive, write mission statements, or make commitments, We have to realize we're fighting against a system that works for the few 
and was not designed to progress diversity, equity, or inclusion. Our goal is to make it work for everyone. So where do I, as a person of color, when I make this choice very deliberately, do I go with sort of what a lot of immigrants who come to this country are sort of told to assimilate here, you need to build your proximity with whiteness? Or do you make deliberate, courageous, vulnerable, empathetic choices and understand that the world or this new country that you're now going to call home has been riddled with segregation and with bias and with exclusion. And same in the workplace, right? When we make choices about where we want to work, who we want to hire on our team, who we want to go grab lunch with, whom we want to have proximity with, right? These are very deliberate choices. And so we have to exercise courage. Ruchika's call to action is for us to make decisions that fight directly against harmful systems of oppression. And she acknowledges that this isn't easy. Wade Davis also called on us to acknowledge history and educate ourselves. Wade came out as a gay man following his NFL career and found his way to DEI work. He's now the vice president of inclusion strategy for product at Netflix. We actually titled his episode, Why Discomfort is a Necessary Sacrifice for Inclusion. His call to action was for us to drill down into the moments of exclusion and examine them in order to learn from our missteps. I actually expect to make a mistake, right? Like I don't expect to be perfect because perfection is actually not the ask in the work of DEI. The ask is that you stay in it, right? The ask is to stay humble. The ask is to stay curious, right? So when I make a mistake, what I try to do is I would say, hey, Cindy, I recognize that you gave me some feedback about something that I said that was wrong. If you're okay, I would love to go away, spend some time trying to educate myself so I lessen the likelihood that I make the mistake again. But I would love to come back in a week or a month or whatever and have a conversation and help you understand what I learned about the mistake, right? Because what I'm trying to do is rebuild that trust that I lost by actually doing the act that was harmful in the first place. Wade was candid about mistakes he's made in his own career and how he's learned from them and improved himself. If we want to change institutions, I think that we have got to understand where we come from like at a real honest level to be able to know where we're going, right? So we've got to be educated more on the history, but not look at the history trying to look at it in this really kind of a simplified way, right? So we could look at at homophobia in this very narrow way and say, oh, straight people are so terrible. Or we can have a little bit of grace and and go the language, the ideas, the freedoms that we experience now was not the freedoms, the language that they experienced before. So how do we have a certain level of, of compassion, right? Exactly. For that this is on a spectrum and a journey, right? And then how do we look at our practices, our processes with much more rigor mm-hmm. and say, how can I add another layer of rigor to each of these processes that lessens the likelihood 
that people are impacted by it. Britt Andreata says we're wired to grow. And that means we can take experiences and advice and learn. She's a thought leader on how brain science affects teams and work environments. I'm a big believer that people can and do learn things all their lives. So we can absolutely change behaviors through training. And most people, once they learn, here's the premise. White people are raised to not understand that other people don't feel included. Like it's a big set of blinders that are layered on through years of education, years and years of media, years and years of living in our own little bubble. And so caring about that other people don't feel included or experiencing microaggressions or experiencing bias, it means that we have to really look beyond what we have been sold as the reality of the world. And that's a painful journey to to awaken to privilege and awaken to how things really are. But once people do, or once they believe their peers or the educational training or whatever, that this is a problem and people feel this way on a day-to-day basis, most people say, oh my gosh, I want to do something about that. One thing we can easily do to combat bias and microaggressions is give microaffirmations. Britt says these are things like actively listening, validating achievements, and giving coworkers credit for good work. So once you kind of understand what makes up psychological safety, you can intentionally create it. I've also built a training around this too, and also with the brain science of teams and inclusion. And so giving people those tools, and particularly managers, Because they have a position of power, they naturally have a little bit of a barrier to psychological safety with the people that report to them. So you have to teach them that they have to be the ones that are proactive to pierce that barrier and invite people in and just continually send signals that they are open to feedback, that they're appreciative of feedback, that they don't have all the answers, that they highly value their teams. Deepa Prashathamam's advice came directly from her personal experience and is something all individuals can do. Prepare. She overcame a predominantly white and male environment to be the first Indian-American woman and one of the youngest people to make partner at Deloitte. So in a situation of a microaggression of a racist incident, I want women of color, for example, to practice three things that they can say. So let's say someone says something racist in a in a meeting when we're back in person. I think so many of us get caught flat-footed. And one of the things I want women of color to do is to have three things prepared. So like when someone says something that's racist, I want us to be able to say, okay, I think you just, you know, I, you just said something that really hurt me. Or I need us to pause so we can just take a minute and process what was just said. Or I need to stop the meeting. I'm going to need five minutes. Like whatever it is for you so that you can kind of take your power back in that moment. Being prepared to call out racism or sexism doesn't just fall on the people who were the target of a microaggression. Deepa is calling on everyone else in the room to be prepared as well. Co-conspirators, I want you to do the same thing. So in a moment where a meeting is happening and something racist is just said, I want the white male leaders to have the three things practiced too, because what I'm finding is it's not that people don't want to do things, it's that we don't know what to do. So in the same way, in that moment, when something is said about a woman of color or about someone that doesn't necessarily look or seem like you, I want white leaders to say, okay, what was just said? I'm not sure what you meant by it, but it's it's probably not working for this meeting. 
or I need us to pause, or we're going to have to come back to that comment because I actually heard something that you may not have meant to say. Whatever that is for you, have those same three things practiced because as white male leaders or white female leaders, like you also may have to intervene in those situations and changing culture, addressing problems, changing context is your work too. And I love that example because it's basically saying like, there's a lot of things in the book that I wrote to women of color, but apply to everybody. Several of our guests have called for us to create more connections and stronger relationships at work. Aaron Hurst is the founder of Imperative, a peer coaching startup that is helping employees find meaning and purpose in their work. So what we need to do now as individuals and what I'd encourage people to do is just take stock of relationships in your own work today. So on a scale of one to 10, like how much is your need for meaningful relationships being met at work today? And like really gauge that for yourself because that's sort of that that moment. And if you have a high score, like awesome, like nurture that, like what is it you're doing to make that work and don't stop doing that. If it's not like an eight, nine or 10, like this is an opportunity where you need to take ownership and think about, you know, for the next 12 months, who are people I want to build a relationship and do the initiative. Know that they would do the initiative, but they're scared. So do it, take the, uh, have the courage and like reach out to people, um, create space to have real relationships, create relationships where you're coaching each other to like be your best selves, um, helping each other process hard days. Like take that role for your own ecosystem. And if you're a leader, I think it's recognizing that relationships are now part of the sort of core infrastructure needed on your teams and your organization and really do an audit and say, do we have the infrastructure in our organization to build relationships, to measure relationships and to sustain relationships? In order to build connections, Tara J. Frank taught us about waymaking. She wrote a book on the subject. We have to get to know our employees and colleagues if we want anyone to have a chance at advancing. On a company level, I say run an experience survey or some kind of instrument that's going to help you understand what people are actually experiencing, not what they think about what you think about you. On an individual level, I would say schedule some time with every single person in your charge. Get to know what they aspire to, what they believe they're uniquely good at, and understand the results they have driven to date. Because at the end of the day, when we have people in our charge and we do not share natural affinity with them, and we don't know what they want to do or what they're good at, they virtually have zero chance of advancing under us. Tara called on us to waymake, and she says anyone can do it. It's about making introductions and bringing people into conversations about new opportunities. But it all starts with taking the time to really learn about each other. I always tell leaders the first most important thing you can do is get to know the people in your charge, not just where they were born and you know how many kids they have, but what they aspire to, what they believe they're uniquely good at, and the results they have driven to date. This information will make you a more conscious leader and give you the data you need to start making a way for them. Beth Livingston and Tina Opie weren't part of our original series arc on connection, but it was one of the things they asked listeners to do. We discussed building shared sisterhood despite different backgrounds, But first, 
They wanted us to connect with ourselves and question our own beliefs. Here's Beth. Interrogate yourself, right? Ask yourself really hard questions. Ask yourself when you have a belief come up, what if I'm wrong about that, right? And, you know, to try to go into that with the idea that if you have this goal of equity, if that's your value, if you really believe in it, then you should want to dismantle those parts of you, to Tina's point, that make you less free, Mm. that keep you from being able to understand yourself better and understand when you're not doing that, when you are setting roadblocks to yourself to protect yourself, to keep yourself from feeling uncomfortable. And dig is that individual stuff. Some of it's going to have to happen on your own. Some of it has to happen with the help of people who understand your journey and can do that. Um, But it's this first step that we think is necessary, but not sufficient, perhaps, to building these sort of sisterhood relationships. Dig is one of the steps towards building shared sisterhood and advancing DEI. Tina says everyone has to do it. We have to dig. So a, a lot of times when we think about shared sisterhood, many people put the onus on people from historically dominant groups. You all need to dig and educate yourselves because you have the power and you're the ones who are the least educated. There, there are a lot of people who have those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've experienced is that as women of color, we don't know each other. So if even within Black women, mm-hmm. let's not talk about class divides or colorism or educational divides. There is so much that we need to do intra-race within mm-hmm. Black women. I think we need, to, I would love to have shared sisterhood, dig conversations and bridge conversations within Black women because we're not a monolith. While we all might get fatigued at times, we have to keep pushing forward the work of DEI. Chris Altizer and Gloria Johnson Cusack are co-authors and in their book, they've redefined this work using the term unearned advantage. They implore us to keep pushing forward. Boy, we've been saying, are we done yet? for a couple hundred years, right? With every different point when somebody gets something, we'd say, oh, so we're done now. We're done now. Civil rights law passed. We're done now. Women get the right to vote. We're done now. Slavery's over. We're done now. LGBT people could use the bathroom. We're done now. Oh, we're not. So so we we first have to acknowledge that we, as performance-oriented people, we all want to be done now. Can I be done now? Well, no. And that's part of that awareness. The way we talk about this in the book is first, if we can agree that there's earned and unearned advantage, then let's go through, let's have some practices to first recognize that reality, recognize earned and unearned advantage, so that we can work with unearned advantage. Gloria and Chris use their book to simplify DEI. They offer scenes that illustrate how we can be inclusive and handle situations that arise at work. The way that we crafted these somewhat fictional situations, we hope unlocks opportunities for people to, as you say, Cindy, to feel and to express those feelings and then have ways of hearing and listening to each other um, that leads folks to their own um, calls for action. You know, you say, well, what calls for action do we have? Well, a call for action for me is do the work. Do it. Just please just do the work. Just do the work. And we're trying to make it super, super simple (laughs) because Chris always says each individual is their own best teacher. 
DEI is a business imperative, a leadership imperative, and an individual imperative. Each of our inclusion experts have asked us to push forward on a journey of personal improvement. Daisy Oje Dominguez, our first guest, was no different. Daisy is Chief People Officer at Vice Media, and she's leading an inclusion revolution. The one thing we all need to get better at is reflecting. Reflecting on our truths and the truths of others. Reflecting on our actions and the actions of others. Reflecting on our responses and the responses of others. And what I mean by that is, you know, I am surrounded by people who really care about this work, who want to do good, and they get in their way every single time because they don't spend enough time thinking about why they want to do this and why it doesn't work. They just kind of, they're in their moments all the time. They are white women who are committed to racial diversity, but the minute that a woman of color questions them or pushes them, they move them away. (laughs) It is the white man who wants diversity and inclusion and talks about gender inclusivity all the time, but doesn't realize that every single person that he's put up on a speaking panel is a man. It doesn't realize that every single person that he's promoted for the last three months is a man. But they are going through their day-to-day as we all do thinking we're good humans and we want to do good, but we don't spend enough time thinking about the impact on our actions. Daisy gave us a commandment in our first episode that I'm still following almost a year later. To me, persistence is the everything, (laughs) is the continuing to do this work all the time and to push yourself to come back and say, okay, I didn't get that right. Let me think about this. What have I done wrong? Whose voices haven't I heard? Whose feedback haven't I sought? How do I try this differently? I am so energized by these calls to action. If I were to sum them up with keywords and phrases, they would be to question our own beliefs, make way for our colleagues and employees, take stock of relationships, give micro affirmations, make deliberate and courageous choices, and finally persist. I hope all of you are as excited as I am and ready to do the work. If you want to learn more about any of these steps to build DEI as an organization, individual, or leader, almost all of our guests have written books where you can learn more. We'll have links in our show notes. You can listen to our full episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Through our show, I hope we're helping you be better informed and have more authentic conversations about DEI. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, wherever you listen to podcasts. I would also appreciate if you rated and left our podcast a review. Thank you all for joining me on this special episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. And thank you to each of our season one guests for sharing their wisdom and their personal stories that prove inclusion begins with me.
We'll be back next month for our season one finale with Franz Johansson. And then we'll have more episodes as we kick off season two with International Women's Day in March. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, communities, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. Before we go, we'd like to thank our partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show. That's it for today. I hope you join me next month.